0: It's the fitness minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond.
1: Tis the season to put on weight and get so busy you can't find time to work out. I want to encourage you not to gain weight and to make your daily exercise a priority. When the weather gets cold and you get extra busy,
0: it's easy and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds. but you will not believe this is the New England Ghost project. Welcome to The nightmare. Good evening, everyone, and
2: welcome to our Halloween special of Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. I am Ron Kolick, your host, New England's own Van Helsing. And with me is my co-host, the lovely Vaughn Bombshell herself, Ann Kerrigan.
3: Hi, everybody. I'm so excited we're doing a show. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't care how we're doing it. Where's oh your gosh. mask? I, I, I'm i at home. I don't need a mask. Aren't you afraid to to catch a computer virus? <laughs> no. No.
2: That's why I'm wearing it.
3: You like my <laughs> mask? I love your mask. That's very cool. What's all over there? It's the Puerto de Dios. That's the
2: bride and groom from Day of the Dead. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah, the bride and the groom. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. I love it. My I sister-in-law love- from Florida made it for me.
3: Aw, mm. that's really nice. Yeah, I, like I love it. I have all different kinds of uh, masks now, because you know it's just another way to express our individuality. And I have Halloween masks. I have a Day of the Dead mask. Um, I have peanuts masks, and I don't even know.
2: See, I was a little blurry because I went to like awake and I wore that. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. By the way, speaking about this virus that we have going on here, do you know that one in three uh people believe that it was sent by God? really? yep, I
3: did not know that
2: one in three believe it uh was sent by God for us to self isolate and to reevaluate our lives and to uh become better people. hey, I don't make this stuff up
3: it's you know what it's it sounds reasonable honestly
2: and, you know. <laughs> I okay. wouldn't be surprised yeah. to tell you the truth. Huh? I wouldn't be surprised to tell you the truth.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well. Yeah, yeah, to be honest, we need a good kick in the ass right now anyways.
3: Well, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I would agree with that. Although, if it was sent by God to make us all better people, then yeah. uh, what's all this crap on the internet that I don't even want to read every day?
2: So, yeah, I know. It's yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, okay, if you say so. How do you like my backdrop?
2: It's excellent. I love it. It.
3: That's the beauty of having your own home studio, right? You can just do whatever you want. Yeah. I like your stuff in the background there, too.
2: That's all my regular stuff. There's that lovely skull that you uh, bought me for Christmas one oh, year. Yep. There's my palmistry h- hand <laughs> you know, for palm reading.
3: Read, read me, read X,
2: me. X <laughs> Files uh, poster. And of course, my famous, trust me, I'm psychic. <laughs> Tarot cards. I
3: love it. I love it. Anyway. Well, we have a great show tonight. Yes. And I'm right. really doing a show other than us. Yeah, you know. We're not just gonna talk for the whole hour. I mean, we haven't done a live video broadcast, obviously, since, since March. I, yeah, actually we never did the March show so the last one was February. Goodness gracious. The last live one. I mean I threw up a couple in between, which we just Things I edited at home. Yeah. Yeah. Not me and you, buddy. So sad. I know it is sad. Yeah. you.
2: Yeah. Can't, can't wait run. to get back together again so I can make some money playing Kino
3: <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? Oh, my God. Well, we all should nice, go so ahead. what we got on the show there, Ann? Yep. We should go ahead and introduce all our participants this evening because I, I did want everybody to know I've literally reached out worldwide to get people to participate in our show. And I hope that you like uh, all our stories that have been entered tonight. And I want
2: to interject something here, too, because yes. you approached me with the, this show, and I said, Yeah, I ain't got too much. Th- I ain't got no time to ain't do ain't blah, 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 blah. blah, blah. Yeah. Right? But then I said, well, if you want to take the ball on it, um, you know, you can do it. I figured you'd drop
3: it, but unfortunately, you put it through. <laughs> When do I ever drop the ball? Me? Nah. Anyway, moving really <laughs> along.
2: <laughs> All what right. Who's our first uh, guest today?
3: Our first guest this evening is going to be Mr. Steve Parsons from the UK, and uh,
2: that means I can have a good snooze right now.
3: <laughs> well, he is—he is going to talk about things that are in back of you during a paranormal investigation, or even just a Zoom meeting. So take it away, Steve. Let us know your wisdom.
4: Hi, it's Steve from uh, Ghost Chronicles International, the um, otherwise known as the gold standard in ghost hunting. And uh, yeah, we're in lockdown here in the UK. Uh, Actually, I don't really need this. But interestingly, because we can't go ghost hunting, Um, We do everything now online. We use Zoom presentations and webinars. And that got me thinking about backgrounds and, for Ghost Hunters, what goes on behind us. Because when we look at a Zoom presentation, we're not really focusing on what the person is saying. What we're really trying to see is what's on the bookshelf behind them. What's that thing that they've got on the shelf? Oh, I don't like those curtains. I don't like that wallpaper. And, of course, savvy um, present presenters will carefully arrange books, products, to reflect themselves or to um, sell their products. But backgrounds and what goes on behind you is actually really quite significant to ghost investigators. We, we don't really like what we can't see. And what goes on behind us reminds me of a really unusual case that I investigated with Parascience a number of years ago. And this was a notable pub, public house, in the north of England. The uh, pub had a reputation for being haunted. It appeared on several television programmes and uh, radio shows. And we got the opportunity to investigate. So we duly arrived um, as the uh, towards the end of the evening. And in those days, it was, it was before the days of wireless, um, communi- uh, wireless connections for the cameras, and uh, what we had to do was we, we all had cable drums with hundreds of uh, yards of wire to join up CCTV cameras and microphones and recorders, and it took forever to set up uh, an investigation. So this was all dutifully done, and we needed a location. We needed a base camp to set up the monitors, to set up uh, a control point, and that was uh, that. The room was duly chosen. We were told that we could have a basement room out of out of the way, um, which we could set up in. Now, all the equipment was put out. It took about two and a half hours to set up all the equipment and we uh we chose this we we had this room in the basement now the room was actually the pub landlord's um viv- uh, vivarium where he hosted his collection of sorry it's not a dd mug um hosted his collection of exotic pets including a large collection of tarantula spiders Now, the room had three, uh, obviously four walls, three of which were adorned with the vivarium in which the large, uh, his pet collection of very large tarantulas lived. I was somewhat nonplussed. I set up, I had the monitors in front of me. and was uh, talking on the radio to uh, other members of the team as they were setting up in the different points around the um, around the house public house, but as the evening drew on, and as the moni- as I was looking at the monitor, I became inc- increasingly aware that all I could see reflected in the monitor was the varium behind me, this crawling wall of spiders and occasionally there would be a thump behind me as one of the spiders tried to leap at the glass um whether it was trying to get me or whether it was trying to get something else i really don't know but it was really quite an unnerving experience anyway um you back into lockdown i suppose and wish you all all that remains is i'm sorry i didn't get over this year uh covid and all that hopefully we'll be back next year um, to meet you all at Spirit Quest and some of the other events with uh, my co-host, Mr. New England's own Van Helsink, Ron, and, of course, uh, my co-co-host and colleague, Ann Kerrigan, both from Ghost Chronicles into uh, Next Generation. Happy Halloween from the UK, and uh, take care. Stay safe.
2: Oh, Steve Over. <laughs> yes. God, he puts me to sleep.
3: Oh, you're awful.
2: He draws out everything, every sentence. Oh.
3: Damn. He was great. And thank you, Steve, for yeah. your contribution to our Halloween yes, show. Yes, Steve. Thanks a lot. Appreciate <laughs> that.
2: I needed the snooze.
3: And Helsing needed a nap. Anyways, so what's next, our next one, kid? Next up. We have another Steve, but it's Stephen Scott, and he is coming to us from the ocean nearby Scotland. Uh, and he has, <clears throat> excuse me, and he has a very interesting story, which is a folklore kind of story called Archie's Besom.
2: Does he speak English, or do we have to interpret it?
3: He will speak English. I guarantee. Okay, good, you. Good. It's a very spooky story. You're going to enjoy it. So take it away, Stephen Scott.
0: Halloween, a time for chills, where the dark of night creeps ever into her presence and where very often we come into contact with creatures from the nether worlds ghosts, ghouls, witches, hoolets, and other creatures with Scottish names you won't understand. This is a story about when one man encounters such a creature, a creature of the night almost, and his name is Archie. And Archie was a very hard-working little man. And Archie worked with his brother, Alex, in the Highlands of Scotland. And they both together did odd jobs. And they owned a little croft, which is kind of like a farm, but much more remote and blasted by winds. And you usually have a few sheep and don't make a lot of money. But Archie and Alex, they supplemented their earnings from the croft by doing little odd jobs for everyone round about the local villages. And Alex handled all the money, and Archie received at the end of every week a sixpence, a tiny little small amount of money. And it didn't matter how hard they worked, didn't matter what he was doing. Alex always gave Archie the sixpence and kept the rest of the money for himself. She knew Alex. And then one day, while they were working, Alex was in the field, and little Archie was working away on this dike, which is like a, a A fence made of stone. As he was working away in this dike, he saw a man come up to him, and this man looked like a tinker. Now, a tinker in Scotland is a gypsy or a traveller. And this tinker comes up to him and says, Excuse me, son. Is there any chance I could get into that field and pick some of that heather? And Archie looks at him and goes, Well, it's not mine, but, of course, I don't think the farmer will mind so the tinker jumps the wall and goes into the field and starts pulling up heather from everywhere huge bundles of it and Archie says to him oh can I just ask what are you going to do with all that what's all that heather for and the tinker says son I'm going to make a broom and with this amount of heather and a couple of sticks and something to bind it with I could make 20 brooms oh says Archie that's interesting. And what do you do with the brooms? You sell them. Aye, son, said the thinker, we sell them. Oh, says Archie. How, how, how much for? How much does a broom go for? Sixpence. Oh, and, and how, 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 how many of them can you make in a, in a day? I says, son, I can make one an hour. So within a day, I can make ten. So that's Sixty. Ten sixpence a day, and Archie stops for a minute and looks at the big heavy bricks he's holding in his hands, and looks at this hundreds of yards of wall he's been building, and somewhere inside a wee light goes on. Just like that, in his skull, and Archie thinks, "Well, I've got an idea." So he goes walking up to his brother Alex in the field, and goes, "Alex, I quit." And Alex goes, what do you mean you quit? And Archie's like, I mean, I quit. I've had enough. What do you mean you've had enough? I mean, I'm not doing it anymore. I've had enough. I quit. I'm not working for you anymore, Alex. And Alex goes, Archie, what are you trying to tell me here? Archie doesn't even entertain him. He just says, no, I am leaving. Farewell. I am going to be me, brooms, and sell them. Of course, Alex finds this hilarious. He says, Archie, Archie, you couldn't make a decision, never mind a broom. And what do you need all, any money for anyway? You live with me, I give you all the food, I give you shelter. And he says, I take all the money for it as well. Fare ye well, I am gone. And he turns and leaves. And on his way out of this little farm, he gathers up heather and he sees a tree And he reaches up and he grabs the branch and he pulls it down. And as he's walking, he bundles it all together. And he stops. And he thinks, this is my first broom. I'd better make it correct. So he does. And he makes the biggest broom anyone has ever seen. And he looks at it. And he thinks, this is a treasure. This is a work of art. This will make me a fortune. So he goes knocking around all the doors in the village. And the wee ladies open the door and look at And go, oh, heavens, what's that you're selling, son? He goes, would you like to buy a broom? And they look and go, no, I've got no need for a nine foot, ten foot broom. What do you think I'm going to clean up with that? I could barely even lift it. And poor Archie gets the same thing every door he goes to. He's either laughed at or they just don't want to know his broom. And he's despondent. And his wee heart's breaking and he goes walking out of the villages and he thinks Alex is right, I'm nobody I'm a nothing and he spots this little cottage on the hill and he thinks well try and try again so he goes walking up and he chaps in the door and the door opens and out steps this giant woman seven foot tall And Archie goes, hello. And she looks out at him and says, hello, son. My, that's a lovely broom you've got there, possibly the best I've ever seen. It's magnificent. Would you like to part with it? And Archie, being a man of business venture, looks up and goes, aye. So she says, I'll tell you what, son. I'll give you a sixpence for that broom. And Archie goes, that's fine. I wasn't looking for any more. So she gives me sixpence and says, But before I give you this, it's a magic sixpence. Whenever you spend this sixpence, the next morning, it will be straight back in your purse. And that's not like a lady's purse now. That's a man's purse that like they used to wear back in the day. Because this is an old story, you see, it's not a new one. But it's still alright for men to have purses nowadays. But let's not we'll get into that route. Halloween! Oh, yeah. So here's Archie with his been magic coin. And he goes away, and sure enough, she was right. You know, whenever he did spend it the next morning, when he got up, that sixpence was back again, as if by magic. Because what Alex didn't know is he just chapped on the door and chapping in Scotland's like knocking, but it makes more of a presence. He chapped on the door of Big Mag's the witch. Now, Big Mags has been looking for an opportunity to find a broom to fit her. Big Mags was seven, eight foot tall if she was an inch, weighed 300 pounds and could arm-wrestle a bear if any lived in Scotland, but they don't. So she just used big rocks. And Big Mags, she'd been waiting for years to go to the wee Halloween party up at the Birch Tree Woods, but she could never get there because it was too far to walk and there was all these mogs and bogs and midges and oh it was all smelly but now she had a broom she could fly so Halloween night comes up and off she goes on her broom through the air and she lands at the party and these witches haven't seen her for many many years and she's forgotten how much they hated her and they're like oh here comes big mags we thought that was your bum blotting out the moon Oh, watch where you land, Mags. There's only three feet for your shoes to get in. You know, look at this big lump. What are we going to do with her? I hope we brought enough food for 30. New Big Mags has turned up. And Mags didn't like this. As you wouldn't. Now, I should say Mags is short for Maggie or Margaret in Scotland. But we'll continue to call her Big Mags because I don't want to put her nose out just in case. So Mags thinks, "Hi." it's on. And she starts casting a wee spell. And this spell she reads and and enchants and brings forth from her very soul the spirit that she's been looking for for years because she's the strongest witch out there as well as the biggest witch in Scotland. And then all of a sudden the brooms fly out of the hands of all the other witches and they start spinning round about the woods. And the force is amazing. Oh, the winds are howling and the Brooms are flying higher and it's like the inside of a tornado, spinning and spinning and all of a sudden, whoosh, the brooms just vanish and they're gone. And the witches are looking at each other going, she's just pinched her brooms. And Maggie jumps in her giant broomstick, the one everybody found so funny, the one she only paid sixpence for, and she shoots off into the night laughing like a maniac because she knows deep down in her heart. This is the best Halloween gift she could ever have because all those other witches are going to have to walk home and deal with the midges and the bogs and the smell. And it is said forevermore that the presence of Maggie's spell can be felt. And if you look up into a birch tree, you'll see strange-looking branches and little bundles that look like crows' nests or birds' nests. But if you look closely, you'll actually find these are the hairs of brooms. And these are the brooms that were stolen by Maggie that night. So all the witches went home with wet feet and midgy bites, the like no one has ever seen. And that's the story of Archie's bosom and Big Mag's Revenge.
3: Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Steve and Scott. Uh, I don't think I've ever, ever heard a story about a giant witch and a giant broom before, quite like that. So, very spooky. Thank you. For you never that hear
2: that. anything like whatever Steve says.
3: <laughs> I know. Sometimes it's a little like, huh? He gets going. and uh, I like Steve. He's, he's a lot of fun. He is a nice, nice guy. Yeah. And his beautiful wife, Bari... Just lovely people. Met them at FairQuest one year, and we've just been friends ever since. So, very nice. Nice house, too. Oh, I know, right? They live right, they just, practically on the beach. I know. In Scotland, although... Man, was, I might move there, I'm thinking. Oh, treacherous. I know, they keep putting up house advertisements. So I'm like, well, I'll just move to Scotland. Yeah. I live by the, by the ocean. I can do that. That'd be neat. Oh. Uh, anyway. So, next up. Yeah, no more Steves, right? No more Steves. Oh, that's good. Fresh out of Steve's. That's fine. Fair enough. So our intrepid power news reporter, Nathan Mayer, is here with a special story about Phantom of the Opera.
5: Bonjour, my name is Eric Mulheim, formerly known as The Phantom of the Paris Opera. I will be your guide through dramatic screen adaptations of my life through the decades. Certainly, some movies are better than others, so I will note my top three picks on this list of 10 that I will be looking at. The first is a silent film made in 1925 by Universal Studios. This version stars Lane Cheney Sr. as myself. For this classic silent film, Universal Studios created a faithful replica of the Paris Opera House as a setting. Due to tensions on the set, there was a switch in directors, and Edward Sedgwick finished the film while changing the direction of the movie. His take on the novel and making it dark romantic movie with comedy was not popular with audiences. Finally, the film was reworked one last time with Maurice Parver and Louis Weber. They removed most of Sedgwick's contribution and returned to the original focus. This time, the movie was a success with audiences in 1925. The film was reissued in 1929 with sound effects, music, and some re-shot dialogue sequences, but none with Chaney. The scene that depicts me playing the organ and Christine, played by Mary Filman, creeping behind myself to snatch my mask off, is cited by critics and connoisseurs of film art as one of the most memorable moments in history of film. The makeup was so disfiguring that the camera operator lost focus while shooting the sequence, and theaters were urged to have smelling salts on hand in case ladies in the audience fainted in horror. This film is my first top pick of this list. This movie is appropriate for ages 11 and up. The 1943's Phantom of the Opera features Claude Rains as myself and the singer Susanna Forster as Christine. This f- film reused the same Opera House studio set as the original silent film and features the spectacular scene in which I caused the chandelier to crash down on the heads of the audiences. In this version, however, horror is mostly downplayed in favor of grand operatic spectacle. My animus was caused by the credit for my musical compositions being stolen by the opera's conductor. In this motion picture adaptation, my facial disfigurement is caused by having acid thrown on my face rather than having been born disfigured, which really occurred. This accidental disfigurement became common and copied in later film versions. The 1943's Phantom of the Opera is appropriate for Phantom fans ages 12 and up. The 1962 version features Herbert Larm and Heather Sears. This version has me playing the Toccata Vogue in D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach on the organ, which has become a cultural trope indicating tragic horror. The plot is like the 1943 Claude Raine's version, with me prodded into activity because of my own masterpiece, an opera about Joan of Arc, was being mounted in the opera house and credited to the opera's conductor. The 1962's tasteful The Phantom of the Opera has distinguished acting sets and music and is appropriate for Phantom fans ages 11 and up. The 1974's Phantom of the Paradise is Brian De Palma's satirical Phantom of the Opera for the 1970s rock scene. It is an outrageous horror rock comedy cult movie and satire of the music business. A freak accident leaves a meek rock composer horribly disfigured. He hides his face beneath an eerie bird-like mask and haunts the Paradise Theater, seeking revenge. This film homages the 1943 film by having the phantom as a man disfigured by acid. Phantom of the Paradise is appropriate for phantom fans ages 14 and up. The 1989's The Phantom of the Opera was directed by Dwight H. Little and features Robert England and Jill Schoen. This is a rather sadistic and gory depiction of my life story, though in this respect it resembles more my life than some other romantic versions. There is a Faustinian motif throughout, and the film features extracts from God's opera Faust as in my life. This version sees me as a handsome man who sold his soul to the devil in return for being loved for his music. His disfigurement is the devil's way of making sure he is loved for no other reason. An additional innovation is that instead of putting on masks, the phantom character stitches his disguises with thread and needle into his skin. The 1990s TV miniseries The Phantom of the Opera features Charles Dance and Terry Polo. Charles Dance does an excellent job and superb as myself and made me look elegant, which is not an easy feat. The physical production values throughout are first rate and gloriously lavish. This version has a few old-fashioned but genuinely scary moments, and makes my romantic relationship with Christine both touching and frightening. This is the first film to avoid showing my unmasked face, and production ever to be filmed on location within the famed Paris Opera House in France. The 1990s television miniseries The Phantom of the Opera is appropriate for Phantom fans ages 16 and up. This 1991 musical video was filmed before a live studio audience. This production, not to be confused with Andrew Lloyd Webber's stage musical, offers a lighter and occasional comedic take on my life and features David Stoller as myself and Elizabeth Walsh as Christine, the musical ingenue who gets caught in a complicated, dangerous relationship with the semi-sinister phantom. The 1998's The Phantom of the Opera was directed by Dario Argento and features Gillian Sands and Assia Argento. Gillian Sands portrays a good-looking man whose animus became from being abandoned as a baby and raised by numberless rats in the deep levels of the opera house and somehow has developed telepathic abilities. He kills off various people who, in his opinion, sold the admirability of the opera house. This is the only film version of my life in which the character wears no mask at all. Cinematographer Ronnie Taylor worked on both this film and Phantom of the Paradise. Joe Schumacher's The Phantom of the Opera is a 2004 film adaptation of Angela Weber's 1986 musical and stars Gerard Butler, Patrick Wilson, and Amy Rossum. Its visuals are quite good, but the direction hits a sour note. The Phantom of the Opera at the Royal Albert Hall video, which celebrates the mark of the extraordinary milestone of 25 years of the show in 2011, is appropriate for ages 10 and up and is my third pick on this list because it's excellent in capturing the spirit of the musical. If you want to know more about this version and its sequel, Love Never Dies, please catch the premiere episode of West Bridgewater Community Access Media's The Theater Niche.
3: And thank you, Nate. Oh, my God, I had no idea that there were so many different Phantom of the Operas. I mean, it's pretty crazy. But apparently, it's just been dragging on for a million years, and they just keep redoing it. But, we should do it. Oh, we should do the Phantom of the Opera? Okay.
2: <laughs> we haven't done one of our live specials where we do the radio shows. Remember uh, those? You, you I know. The readings?
3: Those were so much fun. They were, really. We don't have I don't them. even think anybody listened to them, but they were fun. Yes, they <laughs> did. Of course they did. We made all the kids in the multimedia club <laughs> jump in there with us. Dude, those are the the really, those are really cute shows. I enjoyed those. And I miss, we don't have the multimedia club right now, obviously. So we really miss our kids too. Ah,
2: You save money on t-shirts at the end of the year.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I do miss them. We're going to try, we're actually going to try and get the kids uh, on via Zoom next week. Oh, cool. There's that word again, Zoom. But two of the kids stopped by after school one day and we were doing a hybrid in East Bridgewater. So they came in and they had their masks on, but they, they're like, we missed the club. Can we, you know, get together somehow again? And Russ and I were like, sure. And then, and they said other clubs are zooming. So we're going to try it. See how it goes.
2: So they cut out all clubs at all?
3: all. All after school and except for a few sports. You well, can't have, they even.
2: allow sports, which is probably more dangerous than uh, clubs. Yeah, and
3: yeah. I, know. I know.
2: It's logic yeah. for you.
3: Uh, you got me. You got me. All right,
2: kid, what do we got on our next video here?
3: Uh, next, we have Roxy Zwicker talking about the haunted Wentworth-by-the-Sea.
6: Hello, friends, fans, and fiends. It is your mystery maven, Roxy Wicker from New England Curiosities, at one of our favorite iconic and haunted properties in the state of New Hampshire. I am at the beautiful Wentworth-by-the-Sea in Newcastle. The -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea has been steeped in so much legends, lore, mystery, and history. I thought it'd be fun to take a look at some of the stories this evening. I often wonder for those that come and visit the the Wentworth-by-the-sea today if they know the remarkable history of this location and what amazing stories there are here, not only of the hotel, but the curious people that built it, and certainly the ghost stories that reside within these walls these days. It is a classic Second Empire Victorian-style hotel but there's so much more to it. The building has presence. When you walk up to it, it's almost as if the building is looking right back at you and wants to tell you so many stories. Now, the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea is located on the great island of Newcastle. Newcastle actually used to be part of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and the hotel stands on a high bluff that overlooks the ocean, And the views are nothing short of incredible. No wonder people have been coming here since the late 1800s to take in the cool ocean breezes and to get back to a time that was much simpler. The Great Island today is a very simple and quiet little village. There are about 900 full-time year-round residents on the Great Island. There's no gas station. There's not even a corner store. Really, it was the the Wentworth-by-the-sea that was all the hustle and hubbub. And that is due to this man here, Frank Jones. Frank Jones was truly a visionary. Um, He was what you would call a robber baron, someone who made a lot of money at a time when there was no taxes and no business law. He was into politics. He owned a brewery. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. And when he first cast his eyes on Wentworth Hall he realized that this hotel could be destined for bigger, better, and greater things. So he decided to remodel it in a way that was so grand, no one had really ever quite seen anything like it before. And in fact, it became the largest wooden structure in all of New England. He hired the finest craftsmen to do the work and brought in as many innovations of the day as he could find to attract people out there to the great island of Newcastle, and people came in droves, particularly from the cities like New York and Boston, so they could sit on the grand porches and overlook the ocean and catch the cool breezes in the summertime. And there were a lot of strange ways that people actually got to the hotel. Of course, horse and carriage, early motor car, motorcycles, blimps every sort of contraption made its way to the Wentworth with happy guests riding inside. Now, once they arrived at the hotel, folks were greeted with a sumptuous interior, attention to detail around every corner, delicious meals cooked by fine chefs, and places to rest and recreate while they were visiting. The -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea was one of those places that was quickly becoming an icon Just after even 30 years, it was built. It was known for housing the dignitaries who signed the Russo-Japanese peace treaty signing at nearby Portsmouth Naval Shipyard in 1905. And lots of fascinating people have stayed there over the years. One of my personal favorites has to be Annie Oakley. She was actually at the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea for two summers and she was there to teach the women how to be sharpshooters. She felt it was just as important for a woman to know how to shoot a gun as it was for her to hold a baby. So the ladies would lunch, and then after lunch, go out and start shooting at target practice. Even some of the owners of the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea over the years liked to have fun, and they'd have regular costume parties. Now, this didn't just have to be for Halloween, but really any time. And if you didn't have a costume, well, certainly there was no worries there because they had an entire room full of costumes at the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea. You could be a spooky clown. You could be uh, someone who was in a mariachi band, whatever it was that you desired. And then you would go walk about the hotel. Can you imagine meeting one of these characters at 3 a.m. walking down the halls of the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea? The Wentworth also became the perfect place for weddings, gatherings, parties, and there were a lot of things to do on the property, from the ship-shaped theater to the golf courses, the tennis courses. There was something for everyone. The Kennedys were at the Wentworth in the 1960s. Prince Charles was at the Wentworth by the sea in the 1960s. Richard Nixon was even there. However, by the early 1980s, the Wentworth had fallen on hard times. Due to foreign ownerships and bad business deals, a three-day auction was assembled to sell off all of the assets of the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea. Room by room, lot by lot, the rooms were emptied out. All of the fixtures were carried out. People came from far and wide just to get a piece of the -the Wentworth-by-the-Sea. And at the end of the last day, when the last article left the Wentworth, it became abandoned. Wind, weather, vandalism took its toll on that old girl, and it was really uncertain as to whether or not it was even going to be around, because they started tearing down sections of the hotel, and all of the history that was once so grand was now being converted into condos, and it really became a rather spooky place, I've spoken to a lot of people who told me that they used to break in and sneak inside to see what was left. Now, this spooky facade was the perfect place for Hollywood to come calling, looking for a horror movie set. They brought in Robert Downey Jr., Annette Benning, and Aidan Quinn. And in 1999, a horror film was released called In Dreams. A lot of Annette's freaky dream sequences were filmed at the Wentworth. The Wentworth in the film was also called The Carlton. You can still check out that film, and it's worthy of seeing. Efforts were put forth pretty strongly after the film to help preserve the hotel. It was a grassroots effort to do what they could to save it from the wrecking fall. However, despite all efforts, all of those years of abandonment had really taken its toll on the old hotel. And it wasn't certain if anything at all could be saved for the rebuilding that was coming. Ocean Properties and the Merrick Corporation invested in the property, and they were going to rebuild the Wentworth from the ground up. However, they were going to stick to the original style of the hotel. Now, certainly it was a sad thing to see the old hotel go. However, they did save parts of the hotel to be built into the new property. As soon as the new Wentworth-by-the-Sea opened, it looked just like the old one. And you could still have that same sense of history there. And of course, the ghosts were probably more happy than ever to see this property be rebuilt. Today, there are 161 rooms in the hotel, but at one time there were well over 400 that were there. One of the first things I discovered in relation to the ghost stories at the hotel That right away, people were sharing their own experiences with the staff in the front desk of things that they were experiencing that didn't seem to be of this world while they were visiting the hotel. Whether it was in their rooms or different sections of the hotel, staff started to keep track of all of the ghost stories in a ghost journal. And that ghost journal is still kept at the front desk in the reservation computers. Guests had described all sorts of strange anomalies in the middle of the night. Things such as an eight-year-old child was often seen or heard rolling a ball up and down one of the hallways. Doors would lock and unlock. TVs would turn themselves off and on. Windows would open and close. Strangely enough, I actually spoke to a woman at a Chamber of Commerce event who told me that she was up there on the property before the hotel was even finished and she was walking around hearing music playing from the 1920s, and she couldn't explain where or how that was happening. For a short time, we actually did ghost tours of the property for the hotel. And the reason for that was is they wanted to learn more about who their ghost might be. So, some of our tours actually started in the spa area, because the managers of the spa said that guests had reported, again, seeing some strange things, such as a rocking chair, rocking by itself by the pool, seeing a woman dressed all in black in the waiting room of the spa, who appeared to be maybe from the 19-teens or 1920s. It was quite fascinating that we were able to make contact with her, and she was waiting for her date to arrive who had never showed up. And oddly enough, I'm not sure that he's ever going to show up. Stories about the pizza guy coming to deliver a pizza to one of the rooms is also one of my favorites. He knocked on a door. There was no response. Then all of a sudden, he ended up hearing noises coming from behind that same door. On his way out, he stopped at the desk, and they said that that was a utility closet, and there was no way he could hear anyone coming from that room. Even the Grand Ballroom has stories of a woman coming down the Grand Staircase when the room is dark and hearing champagne glasses clinking. So I really hope that if you have an opportunity to come up the seacoast, that you'll check out the the Wentworth-by-the-Sea. It's an absolutely amazing place with lots of great stories. And of course, I hope you have an opportunity to check us out, too, at New England Curiosities. Again, my name is Roxy Zwicker, and I'm happy to share stories with you from a lot of my travels, but the Wentworth is right up at the top of my list. As I love to say to everyone, have fun, stay spooky, and maybe I'll see you out there soon.
2: Well, that was pretty good. And you know, I've been to the haunted Wentworth. Really?
3: I've never been there.
2: Yeah, I've been there a few times. Uh, it's interesting, I was um, with the manager there and we were going around. I forget what we were looking at for something, uh, maybe doing an event there or something. I don't know what it was, but we got in the elevator and uh, I was in the elevator and I says, do you smell smoke? And the elevator made a door opened and it came up really strong. I said, you know, I really smell smoke. Was there ever a fire here? And they said, oh, yeah, the uh, servants' quarters burnt down. You know, not the servants' quarters, but the dormitory where they all stayed.
3: Right, right, It all
2: had burnt down. So nobody else could smell the smoke, by the way, but me.
3: Oh, that's weird. Yeah, really weird. Wow. Yeah,
2: that was kind of a cool place, though. I like that place.
3: That's cool. And I mean, especially, so I'm assuming you were at the new Wentworth, not the one that they ripped down. Although I think they kept pieces of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what Roxy said.
2: Yeah, huh. they, the, uh, they met there for the, the uh, treaty during, uh, was it First World War or Second World War? I forget. whatever mm-hmm. Anyway. So that was interesting. What do we got coming
3: up on our next one, Ann? So our last and final exciting video comes from Leslie Martin, a good friend up in New Hampshire. And she has done a really fascinating little mini documentary about the Laconia regional facility, which used to be, uh, well, it's been a number of things. Uh, but it's also her husband, Mike used to work there. It was a, a jail, but, uh, it is really interesting. And I wish that we could get in there and do an investigation because it sounds like it would rock. Yeah. So Leslie, Please take it away. Sitting on the scenic
1: hill in Laconia is what remains of a now-closed New Hampshire Department of Corrections prison. The Lakes Region facility did not just house inmates, but also the ghosts of former residents who remain there today.
0: It wasn't a huge
2: experience, but it's something I didn't forget. Um, There was a little girl. I don't know. She was standing there, and I don't know one second she was there, one second she was gone. But I don't know if she was crying or just standing there watching. Anyways, that was my my one experience at at LRF that I um, won't forget. Nor did I write an incident report on.
7: Well, you want to know about the experience I had at, at LRF? Um, it was in the Murphy Building on the top floor. In the summertime, you know, it would get real hot there. And, um, you know, like 85, 90 degrees on that third floor. I remember doing rounds and checking each room. And walking down the hall on several occasions, I would run into a very cold spot. So cold that I could see my breath. So that's my experience there. Experience, All right, with uh, you was in the basement of the Quimby building which is now or uh, were then I'm sorry uh, used to uh, where well, the chow halls were upstairs so there was two chow halls and uh, down below was the basement uh, obviously it was used uh, there was a loading dock and my understanding is back when it was a state run uh, uh, state school that was uh, where the morgue was, and maybe some other things going on. I was down there one night checking, making rounds, um, have to go in, make sure everything's good. And I entered into the lower basement area, which uh, I just had a weird feeling. Uh, I don't know what it was. It just something kind of pushed at me, um, meaning it didn't want me there and i felt it right off the bat and as we're talking about i'm getting goosebumps talking about it um it uh was kind of weird i felt like i was being watched and every time i turned around i felt like something was looking at me i didn't know what it was didn't see anything at that point and uh proceeded just to make my rounds down there Uh, there's a lot of dark alleyways and dark hallways and stuff like that there's uh, no windows down there that I recall Um, and out of the corner of my eye on my right hand side I saw something go by me and I looked down the hallway and I heard two footsteps and a door slam bang and I went down to see what it was, nothing was there. Uh, The door slammed, there was a steel door, and there was nothing there. There's no windows, there was no exits, there was no exit doorway at all. No access to the outside, so there was no wind. Um, or anything that could make that happen. So that was my experience uh, at the Lakes Ranger facility, and every building kind of gave off its own little vibe, but uh, that one gave off a big vibe for me that night. So in
0: 1995, I was working the Shock incarceration program, which was a boot camp for young offenders. I was doing some paperwork, a little after 10, 2200 hours give or take, and all of a sudden, one of the big, heavy wooden doors just slammed. For no rhyme or reason, I thought maybe one of the convicts, one of the uh, individuals in the program, had gotten up without permission. I went and checked all the squad bays, and everybody was sleeping. Again, there was no rhyme or reason for that door slamming shut. There was no uh, draft. There was no there was no wind coming through. It appeared to shut by itself.
1: The buildings that the Lakes Region facility are housed in have a controversial history. The New Hampshire School for the Feeble-Minded opened in 1903 with 82 residents. The residents varied in age from 3 to 21. In 1905, the school accepted women over 21. By 1910, the school had added a farm, a dining hall, a hospital, and a women's dormitory. By 1916, the facility faced overcrowding with almost 300 residents. At this point in time, New Hampshire forbid marriages for those who were in the state deemed as insane, feeble-minded, epileptic, idiotic, or with mental deficiencies. In 1917, New Hampshire authorized the sterilization of feeble-minded at the school under the advisement of three doctors and school trustees, as the belief was that feeble-mindedness was genetic and would be passed down to offspring. 1924 the school changed its name to the laconia state school overcrowding was becoming a problem in 1942 the schoolhouse 614 80 residents would share one toilet and one shower 1952 the laconia state school was compared to a nazi concentration camp by the portsmouth herald conditions then improved a geriatric unit was added as well as a coeducational activities program in 1960 the authority of the school was given to the department of health and welfare education was continued and the practice of medication therapy was introduced in 1974 the population had grown to 1162 residents with a wait list of 400 there was never enough staff and residents sat with no stimulation or proper care leaving them to suffer at the hands of predators, to be abused by staff, as well as the residents. The state school was forced to close its doors in 1991 due to a lawsuit. Shortly thereafter, the Department of Corrections took over the campus. The state school has its own cemetery, which is located over eight miles away in the neighboring town of Meredith. Nestled on this beautiful stretch of Meredith Road, Cemetery State School. Many residents are afraid to come into the cemetery, especially at night. Many strange things have been reported here. Strange noises, dancing lights, moans, whispers. Here on Shemung Road lie one hundred and sixty-nine bodies, former residents of the Laconia State School. In 1976, a group of concerned parents decided to purchase and lay down the headstones for these bodies who were put here with no markers. The question remains, 169 bodies where are the rest of them? Which brings us back to the campus of the Lakes Region facility. My husband, a former corrections lieutenant, helped me look for clues on the site.
0: This road has really no rhyme or reason. It just goes out into a clear cut, open area, and it's hidden from everybody and everything.
1: The road leads to this. There's nothing back here, just a clearing. Do you know what that shed was for? Could some of the residents who once lived here be placed back here? As we're approaching this spot, I'm getting ailments. Heart ailments. Respiratory ailments. Dental ailments. I don't think we're alone in this spot. We've stumbled across some stones that look like grave markers here in the woods behind the Lakes Region facility. They seem to be stacked together. The fact of the matter is, on this 260-acre property, bodies could be anywhere. The problem with that is that the city of Laconia and the state of New Hampshire are looking to develop this land and disrupt the graves of many, many souls who were thought of as subhuman and never received a proper burial. When the graves are disturbed, will the spirits move on, or will they stay at the Laconia State School grounds and haunt them forever?
2: Well, that was uh, Leslie, my good friend Leslie, who does the red light sandstone with me, and. Uh it's, it's kind of a neat thing I mean I, I didn't know about that place that would be a fun place to, like you said investigate.
3: I know I had I had never heard of it and I guess you know the horrific conditions she talked about when it used to be
4: From ghoulies to ghosties